What is up, everyone? Welcome to Impact Podcast, the November episode. If you're like me, you've put away your bike, you're ready for a new season of sports, skiing, snowboarding, snowmobiling, winter biking. Of course, a silent tear is shed when you put your bike away for the winter, but there are other things that gets you outside. Uh, If you've been tuned in, you know that this show is all about the risk and recovery of crash stories, and that's what we have for you today and so much more. This episode fell together so beautifully, and it's a great bridge connecting skiing and mountain biking and just adventure sports, economy stuff, business stuff, marketing. Oh man, so much. John, thank you, thank you, cannot thank you enough for your genuine words, for your time. Can't wait to go down and experience Thunder Mountain for myself. Listeners, I think you're going to feel the same way. You can find out more at thundermountainbikepark.com and they're located in Charlemont, Massachusetts. I think our guest today would agree with me that we didn't really have a set agenda for the conversation just an openness to talk about all things mountain biking and the business world that parallels the sport. If there is a theme for this episode, I would say it's the process behind excellence. The process behind excellence. That's why this episode is titled World Class. Before we start, I have to give a shout out to Kyle and Carolina from Massachusetts, who I met you guys this past summer on a lift. Don't know if you remember me. But thank you both for being my lift buddies, and thank you, Kyle, for inadvertently bringing some content to the show. Let's drop in. Well, uh, the first question of the show is, what is your gnarliest crash? So you can take that for whatever it's worth and go ahead and tell us a story. Gnarliest crash. So I had a good one this summer, um, mountain biking. It sort of sent me back with a shoulder injury, uh, but definitely not my gnarliest crash. That was ski racing. So racing downhill at U.S. Nationals on the soon-to-be Olympic course at Snow Basin. And as an Eastern racer, I had never encountered big Western or World Cup Olympic-sized jumps. And, uh, Hit one. I'd been focusing on it uh, through all the inspections and really paying attention um, to take the takeoff because you're coming into it maybe about 75 or 80 miles an hour, a very short distance to free jump. And I did it in my training run, actually pre-training training run, and nailed everything I was concerned about perfectly. Hit the pre-jump in the right spot. Otherwise, if you're too late, you just launch into the abyss. And flew through the air perfectly, never considered the landing, which was a steep side hill. Crash, took out three rows of fence, tumbled hundreds of feet down the mountain, laid in a ball, tangled in B-net, skis everywhere, mangled gear. And I was sitting there, and you like in that scenario, it's just like, okay, fingers, toes. And then all of a sudden, my brain just switched to, that was awesome, and I want to get back up there and do it again. And at that point, fear sort of melted away from me, and I was just, it was game on from there on in. Wow. Wow. Fear melted away from you. That is, that's a sentence to follow up that story with, because that skiing accident is uh, every ski racer's, you know, worst case scenario. 
did you get up from it? What happened next? Um, well, the course was designed by this former Olympic medalist. His name is Bernard Rusi, pretty famous guy in the ski world. He skied up to me and he's like, what, what are you doing? You know, we just went right back up the hill and I did it again. Wow. <laughs> okay. So uh, what did you realize through that jump? I realized that ahead of my next run that I had already done about as bad as I could do. So the fear, there was no fear of failure at that point. And that if I didn't embrace the entire opportunity in front of me, then I was wasting my time. I was wasting the time of the people that set up the course, my parents' money for flying me out there and all the hard work I'd put in and just decided to have fun with it and to just go as hard as possible at that point. Cool. So, yeah, there's a certain release that comes when you fail. What do you, why do you think that is? Um, I think people that work really hard at stuff, you know, there's, there's certain things that drive them. You know, I, I've, I have my particular motivators, you have yours. And when you really dedicate yourself to something, you want to achieve it, but there's also the downside of not achieving something. So, you know, you, you eventually learn that things are more about the process than they are about the, the moment to moment finality of any given situation, you know. I think every young athlete needs to hear that and gain the perspective that process absolutely matters. John, when did you start mountain biking? Probably in about 1992 or 93. My parents got me a used Cannondale grip shift red thing. I don't know what model it was. No shocks. There was a trail network that developed in our area. You know, there were trails in the state forest and they'd been illegally built. If you knew a guy and a guy and a guy, you could either get a tour or get a map, which was sort of like the Holy Grail. Kept riding, got really fit, did some Western hut-to-hut stuff, and then kind of melted away. You know, the the mountain biking aspect of my life when I lived in Vermont, as crazy as that sounds now. I went to Middlebury and focused more on ski racing. and there, There weren't a ton of trails in the area at the time. But then they did my bachelor party at the Kingdom Trails, which reignited uh, uh, mountain biking. I did the Vermont 50 a bunch of times. And then ultimately, we made a few business decisions here at the ski area I run where we, all, where we opened a bike park. So tell us what you do with Thunder Mountain. I do a lot of stuff. So Thunder Mountain is part of a group of businesses, not that they're, they're all part of one corporate entity, but Berkshire East Ski Area, which my dad bought for a dollar in the mid-1970s. And my brothers and I grew up ski racing here and ultimately traveling, you know, all over the world and and seeing really unique little adventure sports communities. So I spent three summers, their winters in New Zealand. I've been to South America, Europe, Australia, you know, Western United States, Western Canada. And so when you're in these little towns and you're exposed to people with such a dynamic adventure sports background, it really just permeates everything you do. So we always looked at Western Massachusetts and where we grew up, great individual athletes in our area. So it's always been this little hotbed here in Charlemont. So we just wanted to professionalize the whole thing, opened up some zip lines here in Charlemont. Then we decided we needed to branch out. So we built a mountain coaster started a whitewater rafting business, and then wanted to add downhill mountain biking. And what was important about mountain biking, those other activities are are one and done, whereas biking 
like skiing is a lifelong pursuit and it really builds community as well as uh, lifelong ties to an area. So we wanted to add that to our business uh, in a summer way that skiing does for the area in the winter. So people buy homes, they build bonds, and the activities we were doing with the rafting and the zip lining are great. But biking is a different entity. And so it was really important to us to, to create a year-round business here at Berkshire East that was supported by not only just wintertime community, but summertime community. As long as I can remember, Vermont has done an excellent job, as compared to the states around it, of creating a Vermont brand, made in Vermont, Vermont maple syrup. So now even Vermont mountain biking, Vermont backcountry skiing, those are not known quantities, um, not only just regionally, but nationally. It's apparent to me, I think that Vermont has a decent amount of Vermont pride. I think that in parts of Western Massachusetts, we lack that. There is a there is a brand of the Berkshires. There's a brand of the Cape, but I don't think it really encapsulates the lifestyle that from the way that Vermont has done it. So we're working on telling our story better down here because I think it's unique and distinct from both other parts of Massachusetts, but also the states that abut us. Does your team have plans of how to rebrand or reinvent how people see Western Massachusetts? So there's a couple of responses here. One, it's a field of dream situation. If you build it, they will come. So what we have done at our business is created world-class activities. So we, if we build a zip line, we build one that connects a mountain to another mountain. It's half mile long, a couple hundred feet in the air, and you're doing 50, 60, or 70 miles an hour. We build a bike park. We get the best trail builders in the world, and we build the best bike park that anybody's seen on the East Coast, and that's ultimately our goal. And we're partway complete, but we're going to build dynamic trails until it's head and shoulders, like the best bike park that anybody's ever seen. And so that people will experience it and then share that experience with people around them. And no, no amount of marketing or storytelling can, can exceed personal experience. So another movie analogy, how to change the, the general branding of the area, it's Shawshank Redemption. It's a pocket full of dirt in the parking lot every single day. Our little area of Western Massachusetts um, used to be one of the premier recreation areas in our area, sort of a famous tourist area. But when the interstates opened up in the 60s, it, it, it shut down our communities. And we're basically living in this little slice of old New England with a ton of state land, a ton of utility land, wide open forests, nice hillsides, uh, whitewater river that runs 110 days a year with class three, four whitewater. So we've got all these great recreational assets. We got to fill them out and, and tell the story better. So it, I have to produce maps, sign trails, trailhead labeling, and show people how to have the experience that I can have just because I'm local and I, I understand what's available to me. Yo. You're making me want to move down to Western Mass. Also, I know a couple of race circuits make stops at Thunder Mountain. So could you walk us through the behind the scenes of race day, race weekend? What are the logistics involved? Honestly, it starts month and months in advance in coordinating with the communities that support us. So trips to the selectmen office, and setting up ambulance plans, rescue points, 
good information exchange, not only to the community, to the race organizer, as well as the racers, uh, thinking through traffic flows. We generally have a lot of campers, so there's a lot of infrastructure-type coordination that I have to do. On race day, if we're relying on the lift, I need to make sure the lift's operating effectively uh, because we could have as many as 500 racers trying to get on the lift for an enduro leg. So if we, we have an operational issue, I have to make sure that that's running. There's a handful of staff that's qualified to fix those lifts. I'm, I'm one of them, so it means I have to be off the lift. The uh, food, toilets, water, all the fun stuff that nobody wants to think about or deal deal with on race day, that's, that's my department. Cool. So if you were to um, get into racing seriously, would you want to do enduro over downhill? I'm an enduro sort of a hard XC enduro rider versus downhill. I think through ski racing, we did a lot of climbing for fitness. It was going up the mountain as hard as possible and then surviving a trip down a ski trail on a V-braked non-suspension bike in <laughs> like 1996 to 98. Maybe I had a, some weird front shock at the time. But that's really the base of my riding is going up as hard as I can. There's also a self-preservation that settled in here. I was riding very aggressively downhill for a couple of years, and I, I definitely scared myself, not from any crash or anything, but just understanding that my comfort level at speed based on my ski racing was pretty high. You know, anybody can go fast and not grab brake, but being able to ride and handle it, that's that's where I've been working on recently. Yeah. Um, this past summer, I was on uh... – Burke Mountains lift and I had some lift buddies and uh, I actually wrote down some of the stuff that Kyle was was talking to me about we were talking about strategy of riding and he's a bike mechanic just some random guy on a lift but so much wisdom so anyway he said this phrase he said control is the new speed it's the current trend in mountain biking and mountain biking coaching is control and when you get into racing, speed is everything because timing is the objective, uh, what's called judge, so to speak. But he said control trumps speed. So what do you think about that? I always say that at the scary in the bike park behind the scenes. Once you think you're in control, you've definitely lost control because you're just always blind to something. When we first built the bike park, I was doing a distance type mountain biking like the Vermont 50 and other distance style races and we opened in july but somewhere around may i was climbing and riding a lot and checking on the work and i, I always do that around the ski area i always check out the ski area on my mountain bike i make snow on a fat bike with studded tires but the the trail builders came to me and they're like stop cross country riding you're building a you know an awesome downhill park so i spent the summer not riding cross country at all only riding downhill building trails. I learned a lot of skills in the park that I otherwise wouldn't have had. And we have a climbing trail that goes out around the backside of the mountain. And let's just say that my best time up it was 55 minutes. And there's some strong local riders that could ride, ride the same climb maybe five minutes faster. And after not climbing at all all summer and only riding downhill, I took the KOM on it by a minute. And it was 100% because my skills in the park had gotten so much better. Plus, there was this, like this sprinting-type fitness that I picked up from riding in downhill. So I think it was 
control the bike, bike handling skills, main, maintenance of speed that basically made me so much faster on the uphill. So another thing that this random bike mechanic told me, he was talking about how to grow old in a sport. So how does a rider pace themselves and actually grow old in a sport? I think it's just about like any any sport really with that involves speed, danger, risk is you have to understand your comfort zone. And you push your comfort zone to get better, but you don't dramatically exceed that comfort zone. So when you push to the edge, you know, an accident or whatever can happen at any any time. Some of them are unavoidable, you know, you get a mechanical issue. But if you always are working towards pushing the comfort zone uh, by building a good foundation, then you're going to push your ride riding or whatever sport you're pursuing in some sort of logical fashion. If you just go without thought, reason, or consideration, just, you know, willy nilly down a double black jump trail, you know, air skills, then you're just going to wipe out sooner or later and you will not be growing old in said sport. <laughs> you have to, uh, you know, you have to take knowledge from where you can get it. YouTube or the lift ride, doesn't matter, and deploy it in a reasonable and manageable fashion so that you you push the comfort zone, but, you you know, you're not going way outside. One of my, again, one of my good friends from ski racing had six or seven blown out knees, mid-40s, two knee replacements, but he had no off switch. So whether it was water skiing, it would be the three most beautiful turns anyone's ever made on the planet. And then the fourth would be an extreme blow-up crash. You know, ultimately in ski racing, you're just hurtling down a mountain in frigid conditions and, you know, going super fast, very similar to downhill mountain bike racing. And if you're able to turn your brain off, you're just going to and go way beyond 70% and exceed 100% of what you thought was possible, then... Chances are you're not winning a pro class event, but if you're new to the sport and you make it down the mountain, then that's your, that's your victory. Again, it's all comfort zone. So you have the skill set, you know, to be the best. And then you have to just, just eliminate it on race day, the comfort zone that is eliminate whatever boundaries you may be setting for yourself and just go versus if, you know, if you don't turn it off and, you know, that's fine too. You know, I, I, I was a racer who, had a limit switch. I would go to a certain point, but I also turned it off at a certain point and I didn't have any major injuries and survived with a pretty good career intact. So I'm comfortable with the choices I made at that time. Yeah. Yeah. You have to get into your own headspace and shut down anything that's going to inhibit you from going all out. That's not to say that you can just rely on the Hawthorne effect or, or adrenaline or hype or whatever, but Racing definitely takes a lot more intentionality than than leisure riding does. So let me ask you this. Is racing worth it? Should riders pursue race dreams that they have? I think the life's short that I think you need to work hard and do what makes sense for you and your family. And if you're if you want to be a racer, that racing is extremely rewarding or competition that a lot of success comes from competition, whether you succeed or fail. I think that societally that there's a lot of net benefits to getting people outside, pursuing sports, being active, 
moving, being fit. So the more people doing it, the better. And then in terms of my own race prep, I always used to think about it like I was throwing a ball up in the air. Your head is totally clear when the ball is at its apex. Everything about you is just focused on catching that ball, and you're not thinking about other things. And there's a one quiet moment at the peak, and that's the that's the mindset I used to get into. Yeah. John, let me ask you one final question before we close off the episode. What does a good life look like? What does a good ride look like? And how do you pursue those things? You know, when you asked what a good life was, my response was going to be, you know, good family and friends and community. And when you added ride to it, I actually like to ride alone. So it's kind of like the antithesis of the other one. <laughs> I think I like to ride alone because I live in, I, I'm in a very social job. I have to be in front of customers a lot and I can clear my head on a bike ride. Enjoying the things around you, being a good steward of what's been given to you and just, you know, trying to pass it on to other people is what I think makes a good life. As always, thank you for catching this episode of Impact. What I tell you guys, right? World class. John, thanks so much for this conversation and this content. Next month, we're going to have even more for you guys. A new guest, new crash story. And uh, we're actually trying to get a bonus episode done as well. So until then, you can find us on Instagram at Kale Sands. You can also share your stories with us or collaborate with our team, share your ideas, do all that stuff through emailing impact.podcast12 at gmail.com. Of course, we're going to unashamedly ask you to subscribe to the show and leave a comment wherever you stream your podcast. And until next month, go ride your best ride, live your best life, get out in the snow and cold and make a snow angel. All right. 